Welcome back to The Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. This is a podcast where we are taking a deep dive into a triple murder that happened in 1960 when three women were brutally beaten to death in Starve Rock State Park. My client, Chester Weger, was arrested, charged with the crime, convicted, and served over 60 years in prison. Today, we're going to talk about the concept of false confessions. Why would somebody falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit? What do we know about false confessions? What are the factors that lead to a false confession? There's a lot to talk about. Let's begin. A common response heard from those who subscribe to the belief that Chester Weger is guilty is simply, he confessed. Why would an innocent man confess? Surely no innocent person would ever confess to attacking three women and bashing their faces in before dragging them to a cave in the woods. Following Chester's confession, the majority of the public, including a jury of his peers, were willing to accept his story, as implausible as it was, and lock him up and throw away the key. In 1960, a confession was a one-way ticket to life in prison or the electric chair. To most people, a false confession was as improbable as the existence of Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. But in the six decades that Chester Weger sat behind bars, the concept of the false confession began to make its way into the public consciousness. Patterns began to emerge that created profiles for who was likely to succumb to the pressure of interrogation and falsely confess to a crime. Science, and particularly DNA, also made it possible to disprove people's confessions. So what makes an innocent person confess to a crime? What factors lead to a person reaching their mental breaking point? How much duress is necessary for a person to sign away their freedom and tell law enforcement that they committed a heinous crime? If Chester falsely confessed, then what sequence of events led him to finally agreeing to sign a confession where he admitted to bashing the skulls of three innocent women? As we look at the treatment Chester received at the hands of law enforcement, ask yourself, would you be able to withstand the pressure? Hey, Whitney, can you believe it is episode six? I cannot. I mean, it, it feels like we just started talking three seconds ago. But Five just... minutes ago. And I, I feel like I could talk for another 10 hours. So today <laughs> in episode six, I want to talk about Chester's quote confession, okay? But I want to set the stage. And when I talk about this case with people, you know, whether people think Chester's guilty, whether they think he's innocent, you know, it's based on anecdotal information, you know, what their family may have told them, what they read in the paper. But I think for people that are in the Chester's guilty camp, it's simply because he confessed, right? I mean, that's really the only evidence against him. And I think a lot of people struggle with the idea, well, who would falsely confess to a crime they didn't commit? I get it. It is counterintuitive. So I want to first talk about the concept of false confessions. So a false confession simply means somebody confesses to a crime they did not commit. It is a concept that we as a society have gotten more familiar with just more recently, you know, last 10 years, you know, 15 years when I started doing this civil rights work, you know, 15 years ago, it really wasn't on the radar screen much. You know, people were still very skeptical 
of the idea of false confessions. And obviously in 1960, I don't think people, this wasn't on people's radar screens very much at all. So let's talk about the concept of false confessions. And I want to first lay a little foundation of the factors. So, you know, the Innocence Project based in New York, they do exoneration work based on, you know, DNA tests and things. And they've exonerated, you know, so many people. It's incredible uh, what they've done. And they have on their website a list of factors that can lead to a false confession. And let me read you some of those. One of those is intimidation. Another is use of force by law enforcement during the interrogation or perceived threat of force. Another factor is compromised reasoning ability of the suspect due to exhaustion, stress, limited education, Another one is fear on a part of the suspect that failure to confess will lead to a harsher punishment. So that's the foundation of the kind of things that can lead to a false confession. What people don't realize, it is real. It happens. We can debate how often it happens, but it is absolutely real. And I want to highlight briefly some cases. I'm going to post some information on the website. So if anybody out there is kind of skeptical or wants to learn more, I'm going to give you some examples of real-world cases of false confessions, and you can read about them. Uh, I think one of the most well-known is the Central Park Five. You had several young juveniles confess to raping that jogger, and the DNA turned out to be linked to kind of a serial rapist. That's one that I think is, is pretty well-known, and you know there was uh, a well-known TV show about that, You know When They See Us which people may have seen. But I'm going to give you a couple examples of ones people may not have heard of. A friend of mine I got to know called Elstory Simon in Chicago falsely confessed to a crime. It is a crazy story. We did a documentary about it called A Murder in the Park. In fact, if anybody wants a free DVD, I've got a hundred of these. I will Anybody that emails me, the first hundred people, I will email you a free copy of A Murder in the Park DVD documentary movie. It is a stunning case of a false confession of a guy named Elstory Simon. Here's one that really opened my eyes, Kevin Fox. This was a guy in the Chicago area. His daughter disappeared. His four-year-old daughter woke up in the morning. She was gone. His wife was out of town. He winds up confessing to murdering and sexually assaulting her. Okay, I remember watching his civil trial, sitting in the gallery and thinking, God, there's no way. This can't be true. There's no way anybody would confess to killing their daughter, sexually assaulting her. Well, you know what? They found DNA. They found the real killer. It was a false confession. And what Kevin Fox said was he confessed just to basically end this long interrogation. It was stunning, and it really opened my eyes to like, wow, look at this case. I'm going to post information on the website about it. Kevin Fox and his daughter, Rally Fox. Jeff Deskovich, who's now a friend of mine in New York, here's a guy who falsely confessed. DNA exonerated him. He's now got his own kind of innocence project out there trying to help people wrongfully convicted. I mean, there are a lot of examples. I just think people need to understand it happens. It happens and it is real. There can be circumstances that lead to a false confession. And like Elstory Simon says in A Murder in the Park, and I encourage everybody to watch it, you can download it on Amazon. It was on Netflix. It was on Showtime. Please watch it. It was our first documentary movie. He says in the film, you can be put in a situation where you do something you don't want to do. So until you're in that situation, 
you don't know what you're going to do until you're you've been grilled for hours you've been you know threatened with death or the death penalty i mean it's a real real thing and i think i just have to stress so much at the start of this episode that the concept of false confessions is real so having said that about the concept of false confessions and the factors let's now take a look at what happened to chester Weger and the events that led to his quote confession Okay, so in the timeline, the women's bodies are found March 16th, 1960. Chester passes several polygraph exams in the following months. Specifically, between March 19th and April 1st, Chester passes three polygraph exams. And then on April 29th, he passes three more. That's six polygraph exams he's passed. And so now, I want to fast forward to late September... The murder's still not solved. There's incredible pressure. Chester is brought to Chicago for another polygraph. Again, why? He's passed at least six already. And what's interesting, there is an October 13th, 1960 newspaper article from the Chicago Tribune that says, describing the Chicago exam, the tests were scheduled without the knowledge of state police who did virtually all the investigative work on the murders. Oh, is it a little secret thing done by Harlan Warren? Wow. He's there all day. They give him polygraphs all day. They question him all day. He maintains his innocence all day. And then on the drive back home is when, as we've talked about, Sheriff's Deputy Bill Dummett threatens him several times with riding the Thunderbolt. If you don't confess, you're going to die. You're going to get the electric chair. But here's what I find incredible. After having him all day, you know, it's now past midnight. You know, they're getting back to LaSalle, like past midnight, you know, one or two in the morning. They don't take him home. I I couldn't believe this. They take him to the Ottawa courthouse, and then they keep grilling him some more and more. I mean, are you kidding me? After the whole day being in the car and the threats? And then after that, we get into the month of October, And they now decide to surveil him 24-7. We're going to follow him everywhere he goes. We're going to have a police presence everywhere he goes. He's going to see us everywhere he goes. For the whole month of October, I found that stunning and so coercive. But I want you to talk about that plan because we now have notes. I want you to explain who Ann Warren Smith was and what her notes were because we now have evidence that there was a plan to break Chester Weger, and it was written down. Yeah, this is this is a really startling piece of evidence that didn't come to light until 2013. And this piece of information that we're talking about was produced by Ann Warren Smith. Ann Warren Smith uh, was the daughter of Harlan Warren. And from about 1981 to 2007, she was her dad's legal secretary. And when he passed away uh, in 2007, she started going through his things. And it took quite a few years to um, to sort through all of his, his materials. But when she is going through his desk one day, she finds this two-page handwritten letter, uh, which I have a copy of in front of me and which we're happy to put up on the website. And she says that this is a a handwritten document found in her dad's private papers, but she doesn't say it's written by her dad. She, In fact, in her, her sworn affidavit, she says, the author uh, of this document is unknown. 
So we don't know who wrote this, but we know that. that ah, Har- okay. Yeah, we don't know who wrote this, but we know that Harlan Warren had it. Okay. And it appears to outline a plan to frame Chester Weger for the Star of Rock murders. Now, it's it's in chicken scratch shorthand, but at one point, what it says that's that's really disturbing is it very specifically says, commence psychological warfare. So it outlines essentially a plan of wearing him down yeah. to the point that he just goes, yep, it's me, I did it. I mean, like they got it in writing. They got it in writing. I mean, it says plan to pick him up. Well, I'm I'm, I'm filling in the, it's it's in shorthand, but like it says, it says plan, pick him up 5.30 or 6 p.m. Have two or more question mark deputies take him up to the fifth floor and start interrogating him 15 hours there. Well, yeah, and it says, the notes say, get man to confess, yeah. persuade him, commence psychological warfare, put tail on him night and day, visible, know that he's being followed. I mean, they have admitted they had a plan yeah. to psychologically break him and get him to confess. I mean, I could not believe it when I saw these notes. It's another bombshell to me. I've used that word every episode, it feels like. And it's there in writing. And that's what they're doing the whole month of October, okay? After they couldn't break him in Chicago, that whole trip, the whole month of October. Now, let's fast forward. We're in mid-November. And November 16th, he's picked up again for questioning. Okay, again, why? This guy has been questioned for for hours and hours and days and days. And they pick him up again to question him. It's Dummett and Hess. And I'm getting all these facts, by the way, from Donna Kelly's petition for executive clemency that was filed in 2005. I'm going to post this on the website. She's got a really detailed, incredible, factual summary of of all these events leading up to the confession. So then they take him to the courthouse again. They're interrogating him on the 16th. And then they wind up getting the justice of the peace, not a judge. Like, what's he? Is he the local grocer? He is the local grocer who is allowed to issue fishing licenses and wedding certificates, but he's the, he, he sells the local bait and tackle supply. But yeah, he technically by right could sign a, a warrant for yeah. arrest. That's not his daily trade. And they get this guy, this justice of the peace, to sign arrest warrants for the murders of the three victims. Yeah. So let's pause there. What is the probable cause? He hasn't confessed. There's no physical evidence linking him to the crime. There's no witnesses. They get this justice of the peace, not a judge. I think it's very telling. They don't go to a judge because I think they know judge is going to be like, what evidence you got? Mm -hmm. They didn't have anything. But they get the justice of the peace to do these arrest warrants and tell him he's under arrest for the murders. And then they continue to interrogate this guy the rest of the night. Yeah, they get him to agree to to be in a lineup for a a rape and robbery that supposedly took place at Deer Park back in 1959. So, you know, we're over a year later and they're putting him in a lineup with a bunch of elderly men. Yeah, it's a tomato and it's four bananas in a lineup. Yes, uh, completely. And then they're threatening him again. So it's not just the threats about the electric chair on the way back from Chicago. Chester's testified in this November 16th and 17th time period he again is threatened. If you don't confess, you're either going to get the electric chair, you're going to go away, basically, you know, you're going to just die. All these threats, and if you confess, you're going to get leniency. All these things 
leading to a confession that happens at what time? His confession takes place at approximately two in the morning. So this is two in the morning after him basically being awake continuously for 24 hours. Let's pause there. As soon as Chester's allowed to see a lawyer, a public defender, within a day or two, is when he immediately says the confession was false, he recants it, says it was all lies, all made up. So he recants it immediately, first opportunity he gets. So now let's go back and look at some of those factors from the Innocence Project that lead to false confessions. Intimidation, do we have that? Yes. Check, (laughs) yes, we have that. Use of force or perceived threat of force? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have that. Compromised reasonability due to exhaustion? Stress? Mm -hmm. Check, check. Or limited education? Chester dropped out of school, I think, after the uh, maybe two years of high school. I I thought he didn't even make it to the eighth grade. I thought he dropped out after eighth grade to work. So the the factor's limited education. Clearly, that box is checked. And then fear that if you don't confess, getting a harsher punishment. Yeah, fear of dying, fear of being killed via the electric chair and riding the thunderbolt. So when you look at this, and let's not forget the whole month of October, surveilling him, all the psychological pressure. When you look at what this guy went through from late September to mid-November, all the boxes and factors that we now know that lead to false confessions have been checked. They're all present there. And it's incredible to me, you've got all of those boxes checked. And so he gives this, quote, confession in mid-November. Let's now talk about the actual confession he gives. This is incredible. So let's just first talk about the story, right? His general story, we're going to post it on the website, andyhillpodcast.com. You can read it. His general story is he's on his break. He's walking in St. Louis Canyon. He stumbles upon these three ladies. He sees one having a strap over her shoulder. He thinks it's a purse. He tries to grab it and run, thinking it's, it's a purse. He's going to rob them. He breaks the strap. It's not a purse. It's like uh, camera binoculars. This leads to a verbal confrontation. They all agree to like, you know, he's like, okay, let's just walk over by the waterfall. I'm going to tie you up and then we'll just go our own ways. Well, let me pause there. He doesn't have to tie them up. They've seen him, okay? His statement says, oh, I got to tie him up so I can get back to the lodge before they do. Oh, these three 50-year-old ladies, are they going to like beat him back to the lodge? And he's going to rob, he's going to rob three ladies who write, presumably are guests at the lodge where you work. Oh, so you're going to rob these three ladies on your break and go back to work where the ladies are going to come back and have dinner tonight? So the whole robbery story is a joke. And then he's got, he ties them up and he's walking out and Miss Murphy breaks free and attacks him. Give me a break. And let me pause. I mean, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so worked up about this. I, I could scream. He ties them up, right, with twine. Okay, we know it is 20-ply twine, which is super thick. It's like durable. If he ties them up, they're not breaking out of that twine. They're not breaking free. And Mrs. Murphy is not going to run and attack him, okay? And his story is, oh, she attacks me. So he picks up a tree branch, whacks her, kills her, because he's killed her, he's now got to kill the other two so they don't identify him. And he kills all three. And that's basically his story, okay? 
Uh, and, and, you know, he talks about taking him up under the cave because there's a plane flying overhead and he's got to hide the bodies and he makes it look like a rape. None of that makes sense, like I've talked about before. That doesn't help him in any way. So that, let's just pause there. That's the story he tells about what happened in the park and why he killed those ladies. Well, and, and just to, to add, he doesn't get a break between the time he gives the confession. So the, the official log time of the confession is 2.02 a.m., okay? By the next morning, by 7.30, the next morning, he doesn't get a break at all. He gives the confession at 2.02 a.m. And then by 7.30, they're driving him out to the canyon to walk through and reenact the thing. Right, right. So I want to talk about, so that's that's the general story. I want to pause here again. There's a couple points here that I think are really important. The confession, first of all, just in terms of the general story, makes no sense. It's laughable. Nobody believed it. But here's what's more important. It contradicted the physical evidence. And the detectives and the state's attorney's office knew this. I, I want to talk about a new bombshell and a prior bombshell right now. Let me start with the twine, which is the new bombshell. Let me put this in context. In the HBO docuseries, they've got this old footage of Harlan Warren saying, you know, I was sitting around one night and I was thinking about it and uh, I was thinking about that twine and there were two types of twine. So I went to the lodge. The twine was, you know, 32 strands at the crime scene. I went to the lodge and I found a 20-strand twine and a 12-strand twine a total 32, like, aha, like, like I solved it. It must be somebody from the kitchen, okay? You're it's getting this imitation strands. down pat, man. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this really upsets me. That's what he says in that old footage. Like, like he cracked the case by snooping yeah. back at the lodge and it's 32 total strands of twine. Okay, let me pause there and blow that out of the water. And I'm doing my best not to swear here. March 21st, within days, let me read you this Chicago Tribune paper. John Shake, it's spelled S-C-H-A-I-C-H, he's the crime laboratory director. His report covered mainly the twine, which was found around the wrists of Miss Murphy and Miss Oding. This was 20-strand twine used for tying parcels, deep freeze packages, and meat in butcher shops, he said. He reported that another piece of twine was found near the mouth of the St. Louis Canyon. This was 20-strand in length, tied with a granny knot, to a piece of 10-strand twine. Let me pause there. 10-strand twine. Okay, there's a couple things there. First of all, it's not 12-strand twine. It's 10. It's 20 and 10. It's not 20 and 12. Harlan Warren is wrong about that, and I don't think he's wrong accidentally. And here's, here's the main takeaway. This is within days. Harlan Warren is aware that there's two types of twine this is nothing he figured out on his own. This is nothing he did and snooped and figured it out. He just created this narrative like he solved this. In fact, there's another article from the Dispatch in Moline, March 21st, 1960, talking about this Twine report. And it says, State's Attorney Harlan Warren attended this briefing along with State Police Superintendent William Morris. So Warren was there. He got this report. It's not like he didn't know. And so at the trial, this is, this is just, oh my God, I'm so upset about this. It was phrased like the twine is matched to the lodge, okay? 
What it was, and I've got handwritten notes, and I don't know if these are the investigator's notes, it's Dummett's notes. They've got victim A has 20 strand twine, victim C has 20 strand twine, which is Miss Odin, and victim B has two types, 20 and 10, okay? The 20 strand is what the lodge used and every other business used, butcher shop, whatever. It's common, common twine. Nothing unique about it at the lodge. The other type of twine is 10-ply. They went to Chester's house. They didn't find any 20-ply. They didn't find any 10-ply. They found 12-ply, which doesn't even apply to the crime scene. And that's why I think you're hearing all this 12-ply nonsense because they found 12-ply at Chester's house. The twine they found at Chester's house is not 20 or 10. It is not at all related to the crime scene. So I found this stunning. This just completely shows what a fraud Harlan Warren was when he said he figured it out, it was 20 and 12, when they got a report within days that it's 20 and 10. Oh my God. Am I overreacting to this? You're not overreacting at all. And I think what it illustrates to me is one of the big problems of the Chester Weger case is that Harlan Warren claims he stepped on the tree branch, right? He goes, has an aha moment. This is the murder weapon. Inspector Clouseau, this guy's exactly, amazing. Exactly, exactly. And then he finds the, the twine. He goes, aha. So he has these aha moments. And he says them with such confidence that the person who doesn't take a moment to stop and examine why they can't be valid explanations goes, oh, he said it with such confidence. It must be true. And I, I will not say the names of some of these people because I don't want to besmirch the reputations, but several journalists who had amazing reputations and as, as investigative journalists said, well, Harlan Warren said, right? They oh, used yeah. that as a yeah. source. They yeah. didn't question it further because he said it with confidence. And I think that is just so indicative of, a, of the big problem with this case is that, well, someone of, of strong reputation said it, it must be true. I don't need to look further. Well, what, what's so incredible is, and this is, this is factual. Again, I, I'm giving you facts, not my opinion. Within days, there is a report. Mm -hmm. It's a report from the crime lab that's saying it's 20-strand twine around Miss Murphy and Miss Oding, and Miss Linquist has two types tied together, 20 and 10. All right? I can't stress this enough. So Harlan Warren didn't figure anything out, and there's nothing about 12-strand. I just cannot state this enough. Let me continue with the twine, though. We talked about this. This is the same March 21st, 1960 newspaper article they knew this within days. Mm -hmm. It says one important factor in Shake's report was that the twine on the wrists of the two of the victims appeared to have been cut. One segment appeared to have been severed with a sharp knife, and another segment appeared to have been sawed and then pulled apart. Okay? So there's no breaking free. The ladies don't break free. And if the twine is cut, who cut it? The ladies didn't cut it. They didn't have a knife or a saw. It's interesting. So if the offenders, the killers cut it, they must have had something to cut it with. They didn't use that instrument to kill the ladies, which I find very interesting. So the ladies, it sounds like, were tied up to be brought somewhere. Then they had to be cut, right? They had to be cut and separated so they could be laid out. And, and again, I want to stress this. They're placed laying flat on the ground. They're not just dropped, laying on their sides, slumped over. They're literally like snow angels. So they had yeah. to have been cut apart and displayed. So this whole thing with the twine, I mean, this whole narrative we've gotten over the years is completely false. 
And just a, a note, this story that Mrs. Murphy breaks free from her twine. I mean, yeah. her husband even said at the inquest, that's not her. That, that, that doesn't make, that doesn't jive with, with her. Yeah. Right. That just, that yeah. just didn't make sense. Her own family would not corroborate that being the official narrative. Here's the other thing. So my point, what I was starting with this is the confession Chester is giving them this, this I'm using air quotes. The story is ridiculous, okay? But it's also contradictory to the physical evidence. So it's contradictory to what we know about the twine, the twine being cut and sawed, but also the murder weapon. We talked about this last episode. They've got a report within days that the log was not the murder weapon. It was rotten. It would have broken if it would have used to beat these women with dozens and dozens and dozens of blows. So they know that the murder weapon can't be the log. I mean, they're taking this confession and they know it contradicts everything. But here's the part I want to talk about now. Everybody knew this confession was a joke. The investigators knew it. Dummett knew it. Hess knew it. And you know what? The prosecutors knew it. Richardson and Tony Reculia, they knew it as well. There's something called continuing legal education where lawyers can go to seminars on certain topics and get credit for continuing legal education. There was a Illinois continuing legal education seminar on May 22nd in 2010 called The Murders of Starve Rock. And it was presented by people in the media like John Drummond, who was a local reporter that covered the case. And Donna Kelly, Chester's public defender, spoke there. And Tony Reculia, you know, who was the prosecutor, spoke at this seminar as well. There's a DVD of it. I've got it. Tony Reculia makes some comments in this presentation that I just, it was jaw-dropper to me. I watched it again last night, and I wrote it down to make sure I'm getting this right. Initially, Tony Reculia made some very disparaging comments about Chester Weger, which I thought were extremely unwarranted and unfair. And I want to contrast that with some things other people have said. I'm going back, I'm looking at a November 19th, 1960 newspaper article from the Times, Streeter, Illinois. It's quoting Nick Spiros, the lodge owner, who said, the arrest of Uyghur was a, quote, shock. And he said, he never bothered anyone here, nor did he use foul language. He was a nice young man. He worked with us for six weeks after the murders. Then there's an interview with a young woman who worked at the lodge in October of 1960, Victoria Hobneck. And these are some of the things she told the state's attorney's office. I know Chester quite well. I've given him rides home. He's a plain, ordinary, reserved boy. They ask her, he never made any passes at you? She says, no, he's quite reserved. I've known Chester. He's offered to pay me, but I knew he was married, has one kid, has another on the way. I said, you need your money, take it. He's always been a gentleman. And they ask her, you don't think you'd be capable of doing things like this? She says, no, I couldn't picture him doing anything like this. He's just another man, as far as I'm concerned. I've known him a long time. He also said, my goal was to convict Chester Weger. Okay, first of all, no, you're, that's not your goal. Your goal is to seek justice. Your goal is just not to convict. He says, I found this incredible. He denied there was any physical abuse inflicted on Chester. But he admitted this. This is a stunning admission. I believe that the psychological impact that was produced by Dummett and Hess convinced me 
that he, Chester, probably would have confessed at some point. <sighs> okay, so what he's saying is, yeah, the psychological impact produced by Dummett and Hess, yeah, I would have expected it would have led to confession. Oh my God. So that's part one. And then part two, he says, Chester's story makes no sense. Quote, none of it makes sense, does it? And then he says, while preparing for trial, he says to his partner, Richardson, who's a state's attorney, Bob, this can't have happened this, this way. This is absolutely ridiculous. And Richardson says, what are you going to do about it? And Tony Reculia says, nothing. I'm going to tell the jury this is what happened. And he says, we had to go with the hand we're dealt with. I mean, no, no, <laughs> no. This is not, a state's attorney's like the safeguard. You know, the police may want a confession. The police may give you certain things. But you have to decide if it makes sense. You have to decide if you're going to prosecute. Your goal is not just to convict because, oh, this is, these are the cards they gave me. No. So here's my point. It's two parts. Tony Reculia knows that there was psychological impact that he's expecting to lead to a confession. He knows that. And B, what he gets is a ridiculous confession that makes no sense. Okay? So rather than everybody saying at the time, you know what? We can't prosecute this guy for this. It's a false confession. It's a story that makes no sense. It contradicts all the physical evidence. You're going to go to trial with that confession, knowing that, and you're going to tell the jury that, yeah, the murder weapon is the tree limb, when you know that's not true. They broke free from the twine, you know that's not true. The whole story is ridiculous. I mean, I got to pause here because it really, it, it's really hard for me to talk about at times. Uh, when I think about what happened, I mean, I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to just get soft for a minute because I've been, I've been kind of worked up, but it's so incredibly sad to me, Whitney, when you see here all the things everybody knew from the get-go, okay? They knew the word or weapon was not the tree limb. They knew the twine was cut. They knew it wasn't twine that was unique to the lodge. It wasn't 12-ply, all these things. And then they take this ridiculous confession. What I think everybody has to agree, between September and November, it's incredibly coercive, okay? Just the constant questioning, the constant harassment, Add that to threats of death, things are going to happen to your family, 21-year-old person, scared, exhausted, tired, and uneducated. And you combine it with a confession that makes no sense and contradicts the physical evidence. Why are we still fighting this? Why are people still not convinced? We have shown you factually. I've gone through it point by point. I, I just think it is incredible. And it's incredibly sad because Chester Weger is 83 years old. Thank God he's still alive. I, I'm just at a point now where it's like emotional to me. You know, it's just emotional to me. And, and rightfully so. I mean, I think everybody should be worked up and outraged at the notion that if enough people just want to get a job done, the truth doesn't matter, right? Doesn't that feel like that's what happened here? It's like, well, we got a job. We got to get it done. We got a mandate. You know, a prosecutor's job, like I said, is to seek justice. It is not merely to convict. And prosecutors have to understand that's their job. It's not like the detectives hand you a file and your goal is not like, like Tony Reculli said, my goal is to convict Chester Weger. No, your goal was to seek justice. What was the right thing to do, okay? 
And too many times, and this still happens today, I have this, I'm running up against this in other cases where state's attorneys won't even look at new evidence that I present for people in prison that I think are innocent. They don't even want to talk to me. I'm having this problem in Peoria, Illinois right now. They don't understand what their role is. We had the same thing in this case. You know, Will County did not want me to even look at the evidence. They didn't want me to even look at it. And then they opposed me testing it. Instead of saying, hey, let's look at this together and let's get to the bottom of it. Let's see what the truth is, you know? And so in this case, it is just overwhelming from day one. This is just the stuff we know. Yeah, I can't imagine the things I don't know. That would be even more shocking. These are the things 60 plus years later I've been able to figure out. A lot of it simply because we've got newspaper articles. And back then, they talk about this in the seminar, that, that legal education seminar. Back then, what Tony Reculia says is there were like two competing papers. Bill Danley, who was a local reporter, was good buddies with Harlan Warren. So he would be kind of putting out a spin about all the pro-prosecution you know, prosecution stuff. And then there was another reporter who would just plain it by the book and just kind of reporting on things. But basically, you know, they were leaking all this information to the press. The press was very involved in what was going on. You know, so all these newspaper articles got so much detail and information, mm -hmm. you know, and they're just chock full of information and you can piece things together. And it's incredible we have that record. So <sighs> I guess what I want to say in this episode is have people understand if all you've got is a confession, that's the kind of case now in a crime scene like this, in this incredible crime scene, if all you had is a confession, the case isn't even going to get charged. People that think Chester Weger's guilty who don't know any of the facts, and I get it. Why would you? You haven't read all the reports and things that I've been trying to educate people on this podcast, you know, and explain things. I, I understand that people don't have the facts. But when you look at the factors for false confessions we've gone through, you look at how Chester Weger was treated, you look at all the coercion upon him, the threats of death, and then you look at a confession that is completely silly and contradicts the physical evidence, and that's all you got. And all the other things we talked about with Miss Murphy and the unique things to her, I mean, seriously. So this is hard for me, I gotta say. Uh, it was good to talk about it though. This is the confession. We're gonna get into more. I appreciate everybody who's been listening. It's been overwhelming. I've been so, it's, it's incredible to see how much support we've had. And I look forward to continuing the conversation, Whitney. Oh, me too. Me too. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. I enjoyed talking about false confessions, how they came about, the factors involved in what we now know about false confessions as a society. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. And if you want even more information, please visit our website, andyhalepodcast.com. Each week we're posting new documents, photos, and newspaper articles. There's so much information there that you need to check out. If you know anything about the Star Rock murders, please email us. We would love to hear about it. Or if you know anybody that you think was wrongfully convicted, reach out. We'd like to hear about that as well. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis. Sound designed by Studio D. Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy. 
and hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.